and shuttle on the shortwave, we're going back to the 1920s and 30s to an era of bootlegging and kosher wine scandals and Jewish prohibition officers. It's all about Jews and booze today on Shuttle on the Shortwave. We're going to talk with Marnie Davis, the author of Jews and Booze. And if you want to listen to this episode or past episodes of Shuttle on the Shortwave, you can go to iTunes or shuttlemontreal.com. Stay tuned. It's going to be a great show for you. Welcome to Shuttle on the Shortwave. Today we are going to be hearing from Marnie Davis. She's an assistant professor of history at Georgia State University and the author of Jews and Booze. We're going to be hearing about some juicy and troubling moments in American history, what it meant for the Jewish people, how they interacted with this time when alcohol was banned. Before we listen to the first clip, I wanted to let you know about some of the other stuff that you can find on shtetlmontreal.com at the magazine. There's a video done by Beverly Herskovich called Milk and Meat, and it's the second in a series of video clips about interfaith dating, so check that out. Justin is Jewish, Natalie is Catholic, and let's see how they work that out. And then also on the site, we have a wonderful review of a film uh, that looks at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from the point of view of two teenagers on opposite sides of the wall. It's called Dear Gaza. That's the name of the review that you can read at Shtetl Magazine by Deborah Kramer. And the film is uh, Une Bouteille dans la Mer de Gaza, a bottle in the Gaza Sea, and it's playing in Montreal right now. So check it out. And in this first clip, that we're going to hear from Marnie Davis. We talk about what the difference is between temperance and prohibition and what the connection is with prohibition and the church. So take a listen. Lordy, how they play it. Boy, they really Uh, the temperance movement of the 19th century uh, was an effort on the part particularly of, of religious leaders and other religious followers too, uh, to convince their fellow Americans to stop drinking alcohol, to put aside the bottle and never pick it up again. In the years before the American Civil War, uh, the temperance movement was generally oriented around efforts at moral suasion to an individual. The problem, according to the temperance movement, was that individuals were failing to control their appetites and were drinking too much and getting drunk and spending all of their money at the, at the saloon or on uh, liquor and not spending it on food for their families or clothes for their children or rent. Uh, and undermining family stability uh, as drunks they were then, you know, maybe beating their wives and uh, unable to do their jobs. And so for temperance activists of the antebellum period, of the years before the Civil War, the goal was really just to make individuals stop drinking. But in the years after the Civil War, the temperance movement shifted in its focus. And while uh, activists, anti-alcohol activists continued to, you know, make efforts at moral suasion. 
they began to see the problem not as the individual who uh, drank too much, but the problem instead was systemic. The problem was the was culture, and what was uh, primarily at fault was the alcohol industry, which uh, made a profit from the individuals who couldn't control their appetites. And so these temperance activists then transformed, as I see it, into uh, prohibition activists. So the goal wasn't to make people temperate, but it was to prohibit alcohol society-wide. You mentioned that not all of these temperance uh, activists were connected to the church, but many were. How did they uh, reconcile their fight against alcohol with their adherence to the Bible, where alcohol is, is present in, many, uh, in the New Testament at the Last Supper and in many of the texts? Right, and it's not just that it's, it's present, but Jesus makes it. <laughs> Jesus turns water into wine, and uh, he, at the Last Supper, which historians have generally understood that to be a Passover Seder, and so he's drinking four cups of wine. Uh, And so temperance Christians made a sort of a, a range of efforts to reconcile their belief that alcohol was a sinful substance with what was written in the New Testament. And some said... You know, if Jesus knew what we know now, he never would have done this. He never would have made alcohol. And so, though there is indeed wine in the Bible, we know better as moderns. And as moderns, we should prohibit it, even though it's, it's in, even though Jesus did participate in alcohol consumption. Uh, but other uh, temperance activists instead tried to prove that the wine that Jesus made wasn't fermented, that it was uh, what they referred to as new wine or pure wine, basically grape juice. Uh, and so there, there were, you know, uh, ex- exegetical efforts made throughout the 19th century to try and prove that uh, the wine in the New Testament was not, in fact, wine. And there were other Christians who who disputed that and said, no, it, it was, in fact, wine. And if, if you're going to if you're going to make claims against alcohol, you cannot employ the New Testament in this. But this was a this was a debate within um, within uh, Protestant theological circles in the 19th century. And one of the organizations, the companies that tried to take advantage of or that felt they were in keeping with this new wine and uh, they were a holy grape juice was Welch's, which I grew up drinking. I think a lot of us did, but who knew that they had this connection? They were involved in the temperance movement, Welch's grape juice. Makes sense. So we're going to take a little break and listen to one of the top musicians of the 1920s and 30s. Her name is Bessie Smith, and we'll be back on Shtetl on the Shortwave. No. 
Stettel auf den Shortwave auf CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. So that was Bessie Smith. I'm wild about that thing. And we're going to hear more from Marnie Davis uh, about her book, Jews and Booze. It's very informative and very interesting about the history of, of Jewish people at that time and also just what was going on in politics, in religion politics, in class and culture around the 1900s and uh, the early 20th century, and then especially when people were on this uh, mission to ban this, this evil liquid they were calling alcohol. So uh, in this next clip, we're going to hear about an area in Atlanta that was known as the Red Light District, which sort of symbolized to people everything that they hated uh, about American culture that was moving them to want to ban alcohol. And the name of the street is Decatur Street. It's still there today. And actually, Marnie Davis works and has her office on the street there right now. But she's talking about Decatur in, in the early 20th century and what it was like. So take a listen. She touches on a lot of issues in this clip, including what role race relations in, in the South played and also anti-Semitism. So this is Marnie Davis talking about Decatur Street. So Decatur Street was one of the major red light districts in the city. It wasn't the only one, but it was generally known as the saloon district, and it was the one that was closest to sort of the business district of downtown Atlanta. And it was where people from all over the state and the area uh, flocked to on a Friday and Saturday night in order to drink in the saloons and to attend the brothels and there were uh, shows and the sort of dance concerts and things like that. And people lived here too. It was in fact a primarily African-American neighborhood, but it was also an immigrant neighborhood. Atlanta also attracted immigrants at the turn of the century, late 19th and early 20th centuries. And they were living here too, and they were often business owners. Many of them were business owners. 
And what I discovered in my research that this was, you know, first of all, that this, this was the neighborhood where the majority of Eastern European Jews moved to when they moved to Atlanta. And the second thing that I found was that among the saloons dotting the landscape along Decatur Street, which was the main drag of the saloon district, half of the saloons were owned by recent Eastern European Jewish immigrants. So it seemed that they had either brought the work that they had done with done in Eastern Europe with them, or they were just familiar with it. Um, maybe their fathers had done it, or they just thought of um, the production and purveyance of alcohol as a, a, a reasonable Jewish entrepreneurial endeavor. And they moved to a city and to a neighborhood where alcohol was selling really well, and it was very easy to own a saloon, and so they did. How did issues of race play into the prohibition activism in Atlanta? And this is true all over the South, but in in Atlanta, there was increasing concern on the part of uh, white Protestant Americans, white Southerners, that the alcohol was playing a problematic role in Southern life, and then this role was sort of twofold. The first was that the alcohol industry understood that they were under siege and uh, by the prohibition movement, uh, and that the alcohol industry did go to great lengths to to influence politicians, to uh, influence uh, newspaper editors to purchase uh, all the advertising and sometimes even the votes that they possibly could in order to, uh, to undermine prohibitionist efforts. One of the concerns that uh, white Southerners had was that African-American men who, you know, in, in Georgia at this time still had the vote. They didn't have, at this point, the vote had been taken away from them. And in the, in the late, in the 1890s, the vote was taken away from African-American men in several, several Southern states. But in Georgia, they still had the vote. And there was concern that uh, African-American men's votes could easily be bought by the liquor company. And there was this image uh, that uh, caused great anxiety of a black man with a bottle in one hand and a ballot in the other, so that he would be given a bottle of liquor, he would drink it, and then he would go off to vote the uh, alcohol industry's interests. The other concern that, that white Southerners increasingly felt themselves to be or under siege about was that, that there was a there was a general sentiment, a hysterical sentiment, that uh, an African American man couldn't control his thirst and once he got drunk his immediate impulse would be to go uh, find a white woman to rape. And so this dual political and and sexual anxiety is growing throughout the um, the late 19th and early 20th century, and it really sort of it comes to a to an explosive head in 1906 in Atlanta, after several months of newspaper coverage that makes great efforts to write the most sort of outrageous versions of these stories about drunken African American men and the threat that they are posing to white women. And uh, one evening in September of 1906, it explodes into a riot and uh, a group of white men, some from the city, many from outside the city who had actually come to town to hear a political speech. They uh, sort of rage as a group uh, into the Decatur Street District and they basically start 
smashing windows. They actually, there's record of them uh, smashing saloon windows and, you know, going inside and basically taking all the alcohol and drinking it and then proceeding forward uh, and spending the next several days tracking down and sometimes murdering African Americans in Atlanta and something like uh, two dozen uh, blacks, mostly black men, uh, were killed over those days. And after the riot, there is uh, much hand-wringing and concern what's happened here, and it is determined in Atlanta and in the state in general that the problem was alcohol. And within a year from the riot, uh, a prohibition movement is passed and the state becomes dry. And also within a year from that, African-American men are basically removed from the voter rolls and disfranchised. And it was Jewish saloon owners who were selling the alcohol, and it was the industry that was providing it and the saloon owners that were enabling uh, black patrons to drink, whereas other other saloons wouldn't have them in as patrons. No, that I mean, that's not true at all. The, the um, First of all, like though on Decatur Street, the Jewish saloon keepers were, were you know, half of the saloon keepers around, the Jews were still in the minority among alcohol dealers and alcohol entrepreneurs in the city in general. So the, the accusation that emerges in the months and years after the riot that, that the problem was Jews doesn't actually match the reality. Jews were part of an alcohol industry that uh, was accused of, of undermining uh, white Southern safety. But they certainly weren't alone in that. I, I guess the term that comes to mind is scapegoat. <laughs> they, they were uh, regarded as, uh, as primary to the problem, as really as sort of most responsible for the problem because of uh, growing anti-Semitic sentiment in the country and throughout the South um, at this time, uh, and particularly economic anti-Semitic sentiment. from that time and it was pretty interesting to hear about the different ways that Jewish people reacted to prohibition considering that it was a movement that did start with people from the church church leaders and churchgoers who wanted to bring a certain type of morality to the United States it's not surprising that Jewish people weren't always on board with prohibition um, and, and uh, Marnie Davis is going to talk a little more about that after but first I thought it would be nice to just uh, take it easy on uh, on Friday morning and listen to a little bit of Winoni Harris uh, this is Quiet Whiskey Whiskey, whiskey on the shelf You were so quiet there by yourself Things were fine till they took you down And opened you up and passed you around John was the first one to pull you down He took one drink and he started to clown Passed you the Hazel, Jane and Jack Penelope got you and passed you right back The doorbell rang and what did you see? In walked Henry, Fred and Marie They hit you high, they hit you low They hit you fast and they hit you slow Whiskey on the shelf You were so quiet there by yourself Things were fine till they took you down Opened you up and passed you around
dead and wanted another. They reached on the shelf and grabbed your brother. It's a shame the way they did you in. Then reached up and got your brother again. Grandfather Wine began to tremble with fright, wondering if the party was gonna last all night. Grandfather Wine knew without a doubt he was next in line if the juice ran out. Whiskey on the shelf. You were so quiet there by yourself. Things were fine till they took you down, opened you up and passed you around. Everybody, they've got real tight. Now they want to start a fight. John never did nothing wrong in his life. Now he's in the corner with the policeman's wife. Frank's so drunk he can hardly see. Trying to make love to Penelope. She took a bottle and hit him in the jaw. That's when the neighbors called the law. Whiskey on the shelf. You were so quiet there by yourself. Things were fine till they took you down, opened you up, and passed you around. <laughs> When Moses ascended Mount Sinai, he went to hear God's word. When the prophet descended, he came carrying tablets inscribed with God's will. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt be fruitful. And thou multiply. Thou shalt listen to Shell on the Short Wave on CKUT 90.3 FM. That's right. Thou shalt listen to Shtetl on the shortwave. And I wanted to uh, I wanted to make an announcement about next week's show. We're going to be doing a special Passover edition and uh, Friday of next week, Passover begins. And we are going to be talking about the story of Exodus, not on the show, but that's that's what people will be reading about on uh, on the two Seder nights, the story of the liberation from slavery. And so on next week's show, the Passover edition, we're going to be focusing this whole show on Jews in prison. And there are going to be some pretty amazing interviews, one with somebody uh, who is creating a documentary, and uh, it's all about Jews in prison in the United States, and including one who was on death row and unfortunately was executed. So that she'll be uh, a feature interview on the show next week. And also we'll be talking about a special place in Montreal, one of the very few places in all of North America, if not the only place where Jewish prisoners can go after their sentence to be rehabilitated. So it's a sort of uh, Jewish halfway house and it's right here in Montreal. So we're going to be hearing from some of the people who live there and also from the rabbi who started the place. Uh, in this next clip, back to Jews and booze, <laughs> we're going to be uh, hearing about the connection between Jewish 
leaders uh, in America and and how they felt about prohibition. When I was just mentioning the Passover seders at the seder, we we drink four cups of wine, and uh, every Friday night, some Jewish people like tonight will be celebrating and getting all spiritual. And a big part of that is is the wine that they drink with um, with the meal. And so, uh, but what did we do when it was prohibition time? And that was that was not allowed. So in this next clip, we're going to hear about that and uh, and just how Jews managed during prohibition. But first and foremost, I asked Marnie Davis, were Jews for prohibition? They were very much opposed to prohibition for a number of reasons, uh, one of which was that they... Um, were actually engaged in the in the in the production and sale of alcohol, um, and so they understood that if alcohol was no longer a product that they could sell, it would it would undermine their you know communal economic well-being. But they they also I mean it wasn't just a matter of of self-interest. They also read the Constitution in a particular way, and they weren't alone in reading it as guaranteeing a certain set of rights: rights of religion, uh, rights of property, rights of conscience. Uh, and they saw the prohibition movement as uh, seeking to lessen those rights. And American Jews regarded the United States as a place where religion and citizenship were entirely uncoupled. So they they were they were opposed to prohibition for a number of reasons, and some of them uh, were because they understood the Constitution to guarantee certain rights, and among those were the, the rights to drink alcohol if one chose to do so. So how did Jewish tradition survive, like the Friday night Kiddush and Purim and drinking at Passover, all the ways in which wine is used in traditional uh, rituals? How did they manage to continue doing this during Prohibition? Well, (laughs) the, the law that was created to codify and to uh, create the enforcement mechanisms for prohibition, um, which was known as the National Prohibition Act. It's also known as the Volstead Act. Um, The Volstead Act included a special dispensation. Section 6 of the Volstead Act um, makes special dispensation for uh, sacramental wine used for religious ritual purposes. So Jews and Catholics and Episcopalians and Lutherans and any other group that used, religious group that used alcohol for uh, their um, the religious rituals could have access to it. And you have to go to your clergy person, your clergyman uh, at the time, and your clergyman would go to a specially licensed official sacramental wine shop, which would have a relationship with the, the local prohibition bureau, and that wine would be made uh, available to individuals and congregations who wanted it. Okay, so that brings me to the sacramental wine scandals. So there were two problems, I guess it's fair to say, with the way that the sacramental wine dispensation was set up, uh, especially regarding uh, Jewish ritual practices. The first is that though Catholics and Episcopalians consume their wine at church, Jews consume their wine at religious rituals that take place at home. So uh, a, a Catholic congregation that wanted access to wine, the, the priest would go to the sacramental wine shop, get the wine, bring it to the church. The wine would be distributed basically by the mouthful at church, and that's sort of the end of the distribution line. 
But for Jews who had access to wine and were able to take it home with them, who knows what happens to it next, right? It could, you know, one might drink it during Passover or Friday night, or one might drink it on a Tuesday because one likes wine, or one might sell it to a neighbor. And the second problem that Again, whereas Catholic priests are ordained by an ecclesiastical authority, there is no ecclesiastical authority um, in American Judaism to, that can say for sure who is a rabbi and who is not. And this is especially the case during the um, early years of the 20th century when many of the Orthodox rabbis are very recent immigrants. And so they're, I mean, they don't have any official credentialing. They have studied under uh, the tutelage of a rabbi in Europe. They've come to the United States. And and they have the knowledge, but not any sort of official degree or a piece of paper that says that they're a rabbi, but they are. They're serving a congregation. But that means that anyone can claim to be a rabbi, and if they can offer a list of congregants, then who is to say that they aren't? So within a year of uh, the beginning of, of Prohibition, by 1921, the dissemination of sacramental wine had absolutely exploded. You know, in numbers that were that were shocking and really dismaying to many American Jewish leaders who had hoped that the way that uh, Section 6 had been worded, they had hoped that that would align Jewish practice with American law, but it had created so many huge leaking holes that were just dripping with sacramental wine, and it was it was so widely available that some American Jewish leaders actually hoped to have Section 6 revoked. It, you know, it, there was an increasing sense um, that uh, Jews were playing an inordinate role in flouting prohibition law. Hmm. Jewish people seem to uh, have a very strong, intense history with uh, alcohol, and it's a big part of uh, Jewish tradition and also a part of Jewish, um, the history of Jewish commerce. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that later on. We're going to talk with, with Marnie Davis about some of the very colorful characters, um, sometimes troubling, and uh, that were players in the Prohibition era, including Izzy Einstein, a observant Jewish prohibition era agent who was was quite successful at uh, at getting the criminals and we're going to hear a little bit more about him but since we're talking about rabbis and and alcohol and the dispensation of sacred wine I thought it would be a perfect time to play the Canadian whiskey rabbi this is Jeff Berner and the song is called whiskey <laughs> When the matchmaker came to my grandfather To try to make a match between my father and mother Well, they talked and they talked But they didn't agree Until someone produced a bottle of whiskey then they drank and they sang and they danced and they reeled. And in the morning when they woke up, the deer was seen.
the couple was shy. But fortunately, there was an open bar with plenty of whiskey. That's the reason for my insistence that whiskey is responsible for my very existence. Cause they drank and they danced and they suddenly knew what a young couple is supposed to do. My circumcision, everybody drank like Russians. So in the end, when they put me in the land, I want you to bury me with a bottle of whiskey in my hand. Cause when it's time to get judged on the judgment day I know I'm gonna need a whiskey right away the whiskey rabbi. Uh, Jeff is from, uh, I think he's from Edmonton. He's from out west in Canada, and he's our uh, saint of klezmer punk, and I love playing him. Check out his new album, Victory Party. And in this next clip, we're going to be hearing about some controversial moments in Prohibition history. Marnie Davis talks about the Purple Gang and about uh, the Bronfmans and some of the research she did about them, as well as Izzy Einstein, a very colorful character in Prohibition history. So take a listen. The Purple Gang and Murder Incorporated, these were gangs of multi-ethnic bootleggers and toughs. They were primarily made up of either immigrant men or the children, the young men who were the children of immigrants. They were mostly, you know, in their young, they were young in their 20s and 30s, and they saw in Prohibition the opportunity to make um, extraordinary amounts of money if one was willing to uh, participate in an illegal and sometimes uh, quite violent economic endeavor. And so these gangs were responsible for uh, bringing into the United States from Canada and distributing untold millions of gallons 
of alcohol, and uh, they did so sometimes through murder, through uh, hijacking other illegal shipments of alcohol, or sometimes you know illegal shipments of alcohol, and sometimes killing the people who you know stood in their way, uh, or uh, killing people, murdering other gang members who were infringing on their turf. What's really interesting about these guys is that. Uh, before prohibition, the likelihood that a criminal gang would include members of uh, a multitude of ethnic groups was really, as far as I can tell, it's unknown. Uh, the gangs really were sort of divided out by ethnicity. The the smartest and most effective of these guys uh, in the in the 1920s discovered that they could make more money and be more productive um, in their way uh, by working together, by disregarding ethnic difference. And so that's what they did. And by the end of the 1920s, they had established a, a national multi-ethnic crime syndicate that's still in, present in American life today. It sounded in the book like that it was mostly Italians and Jews that were getting together to, to form these multi-ethnic gangs. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. They, they were, there were also um, some Irish uh, members of Irish American communities, some Polish as well. In the South, you'd be more likely to find native-born, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But certainly in the Northeast, yes, definitely, mostly Jews and Italians. Okay. Most famously, guys like you know Al Capone and Lucky Luciano, and you know working either alongside with or in competition with people like Meyer Lansky and uh, Arnold Rothstein and so on. You mentioned in the book that they had nicknamed Lake Erie. The Jewish Lake. The Jewish Lake. Why? Yes. Because, uh, and I should say that this, this is a story that I have heard anecdotally many, many times. The reason that they called it the Jew Lake was because the Purple Gang and other Jewish bootlegging groups were so plentiful, running their boats back and forth across the lake to bring alcohol from Canada uh, down into Detroit and from there to distribute it throughout uh, the Midwest. And seeing as this radio show airs live in Montreal, I think people would be interested in hearing a bit about the Bronfman connection. Where, of course. Where did they come into to prohibition? What was their role? Right. Uh, now, as far as I know, the Bronfmans have never in any official capacity admitted to their role in, uh, in bringing alcohol to the United States during the Prohibition era. So I tread lightly here. Uh, but well, what we do know for sure is that the Bronfmans, they started out, um, the patriarch of the family uh, came from Bessarabia, moved to Canada, uh, became he and his sons purchased a hotel chain and discovered that their uh, the bars and the hotels were actually the money makers. This is how they got involved in the alcohol business. They were deeply engaged in the alcohol business during Canada's sort of brief sojourn into prohibition law. And then when the United States declared themselves to be dry, uh, the Bronfmans purchased a, a couple of distilleries and took them apart in the United States and brought them back in pieces and put them back together in Canada. And at the same time, purchased a, a range of um, warehouses along the Canadian-American border. And, and here's where it gets questionable of what happened to that alcohol that was in those warehouses. And it is generally understood that that, that was the alcohol that then was 
made available to American bootleggers, and sometimes it would be, you know, sometimes sometimes it was shipped all the way south to um, the Caribbean, and then American bootleggers would bring it back to the United States, sometimes through the Great Lakes. Uh, sometimes it was far more direct. Sometimes this alcohol was made available or sold to uh, uh, Jewish bootleggers um, on the East Coast, especially uh, Longies Willman and uh, Max Reinfeld, who were sort of the, at the head of the, of, uh, the Newark bootlegging network. Um, they had an uh, established and long-running relationship with the Bronfmans. So there is uh, significant evidence to suggest that the Bromptons were, in fact, participating in American um, bootlegging endeavors, and it's it's hard for us to know how eagerly they, uh, you know, engaged in these in these uh, business transactions with other Jewish immigrants and first generation uh, you know, Jewish Americans. If if they did so uh, out of a sense of ethnic solidarity or just because, you know, business was business, these are things we can only guess at. Interesting. So I wanted to ask you about Izzy, Izzy and Mo, Izzy Einstein. Izzy Einstein, yes. So can you tell uh, us about him and what role he played? Sure. Izzy Einstein was the most unlikely character of all because he was a um, a prohibition agent, a Jewish immigrant who was a prohibition agent. Uh, I I don't think there were any uh, Izzy and Mo were the only two, and I you know I I point to Izzy in particular just because Izzy was was so colorful. Uh, Mo was sort of his uh, his straight man, the sidekick. Um, but Izzy was uh, working as a mail sorter in New York and had disappointed his father because his father had wanted him to become a rabbi. Hmm. Uh, but when Prohibition uh, came about, uh, Izzy Einstein went to the Prohibition office in New York and pointed out to them that it's true that he didn't look like a, an agent, a pro, like a, you know, an agent of the law, a lawman, because Izzy Einstein was about five foot five and weighed about two hundred pounds, and, and walked with a waddle, <laughs> uh, so he couldn't really run very fast. And so he said, "I know I can't do any of those things, but I look like." the bootleggers' customers, and so I can trick them into thinking that I am, you know, legitimately trying to buy alcohol, and then I can I can bust them. Hmm. And over the course of the next five years, he and uh, his partner, Mo, were uh, probably the most effective, prolific of prohibition agents. They, um, they made almost 5,000 arrests almost all of which, more than 90% of which, made their way to conviction, which was, I, I believe, a Prohibition Bureau record. And he did so in a way that other Prohibition agents couldn't do, not just because he was Jewish and they weren't, but because he could really sort of play with the with, with Jewish stereotypes in a way that, that no one else could. Um, he was able to uh, you know, pr- pretend. At, I guess you could say he would. He would sort of amplify his his stereotypically ethnic qualities in order to trick the bootleggers and saloon keepers and you know speakeasy bar keeps that uh, there's no way that he could be anything other than some you know fat little Jewish guy that wants a whiskey. And then it turns out that he is the law. How so he was it? this sort of trickster character, and, and uh, America, Americans really loved reading about his, his exploits. They, they found him to be serious, and Prohibition was serious business, but he certainly lent it some comic relief. How did he use his ethnicity specifically to, to trick people? 
Well, he had knowledge of a wide range of, of European languages, mm-hmm. including Yiddish, which he used, but other languages, too. He said he knew some Italian and some Hungarian and um, some Polish. But uh, he could also, in one instance, he uh, convinced a bartender uh, that he was a rabbi. And I imagine that he had to prove it in some way in order to actually get the drink. (laughs) Um, In another case, the bartender said, I think you're Izzy Einstein. Actually, he was that famous. They said, you're Izzy Einstein. I'm not going to serve you a drink. And Izzy Einstein insisted that he was not, in fact, who he was. And the bartender said, okay, if you are not uh, Izzy Einstein, then then you'll eat this and eat this ham sandwich. And so Izzy Einstein had to sort of very quickly remove the ham because he was he was actually he was a, a kosher keeping Jew, he was an observant Jew, and so he had to very quickly you know remove the ham in order to eat the sandwich, in order to prove to the guy that he wasn't Izzy Einstein, in order to get the whiskey, and then he could do his job, which was to which was to arrest. Uh, the saloon keeper for selling him whiskey. And uh, <laughs> no, it's, I know. That's it's, some pretty fancy I mean, moves. Here's the other thing about Izzy Einstein <laughs> is that he was a really active self-promoter. And so sometimes when you read, he has this, he has this great memoir of, the, of his time with the Prohibition Bureau called Prohibition Agent Number One. And there are some times when you're reading it and it's like, there's no way that actually happened. You are either embellishing the truth or just outright making stuff up. Like when he talks about, he's, he claimed that one of the things that he did, one of the ways that he busted speakeasy owners in Harlem was that he blacked up. He actually put on blackface and then, you know, in the early morning went from speakeasy to speakeasy pretending to be a um, coal uh, distributor selling coal so that they, you know, could heat their, their, uh, their establishments and asking for whiskey while he was there. But it's really hard to imagine that he could go to a speakeasy owner with his face blacked up with cork and be believed as anything other than someone who is pretending to be an African-American person. <laughs> but, but these are the sorts of stories that he, he told about himself, and uh, Americans certainly enjoyed hearing about them. What are you doing? You drink. We're closed. Nice people don't drink on Pesach. They go to the synagogue. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm with a great terribleness.
So that was a little bit of so-called to get us in the Passover mood. And good people don't drink on Pesach. <laughs> um, so I uh, I wanted to thank before we move on to the next huge portion of the show, which is all of eight minutes. I wanted to thank Marnie Davis for taking the time to talk to us about her incredibly interesting research that she did for Jews and booze. And I encourage you to check out the book and, and read more about the history. It's pretty fascinating. Um, and before we listen to another song about wine, I wanted to announce the winner of the Indie Rock coloring book. We had the contest, uh, we had it started last episode of Shtetl when Matt Stotland was on from the Yellow Bird Project. And the Yellow Bird Project is one where indie rock artists make designs for t-shirts and then they're sold and the money goes to a charity of their choice. And in addition to that, they have an indie rock coloring book designed by indie rock artists and it's really really cool and dun, da, 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 the winner of the indie rock coloring book contest is Liliane Grassa so Liliane we're going to get in touch with you and mail you a copy of that and thank you to everybody who wrote in to um, to be part of the contest and we'll be giving away more stuff on Shtetl in the coming weeks so this song is from one of my favorite uh, Ladino pop bands De Leon and it's called More Than Wine and we'll be back on Shtetl in just a moment.
That's De Leon off of their album Cassata, a very, very cute band, and that was More Than Wine. Uh, not many Ladino pop rock bands out there, and uh, they're one of the best ones around. So uh, keep keep in touch with Stettel, because we'll, we'll be keeping you posted on their new album, which should be coming out very soon. And that really takes us to the end of Stettel on the Shortwave. We're going to go out with one more song, but before we do, I wanted to thank you for tuning in and ask you to tune in next week for a very special Passover edition of Stettel on the Shortwave. We've been putting in a lot of work into this, and I think it's going to be a really special show looking at um, Jews in the prison system and making the connection between Passover and uh, the freedom uh, that um, that everyone is fighting for from slavery. So this last song is dedicated to Darren Stolo because it's his birthday and he made the request, but also because he is the graphic designer for Shtetl magazine. And if you want to see his beautiful work, all the graphics at shtetlmontreal.com are done by him. So thank you and happy birthday, Darren. This is The Piano Has Been Drinking by Tom Waits. Piano has been drinking My nectar is asleep And the combo went back to New York The jute park says to take a leap And the carpet needs a haircut And the spotlight looks like a prison Cause the telephone's out of cigarettes And the balcony is all in the make And the piano has been drinking The piano has been drinking And the menus are all freezing And the light man's blind and they can't see out of the other And a piano tune has got a hearing aid And show